Well, it's a delight to have you all here. We've got a pretty full house. That's a, a, always an encouragement to stand up here and see so many people trusting us with your time this morning. So thank you for being here. I've met a couple of guests this morning, and it's nice to have our guests with us as well. And uh, uh, excited that you're here. Okay, so I don't know how you make choices in your life. And that I'm not talking about should I work here or should I work there? Should I buy this house or should I buy that house? I'm talking about the choices where you've got a big opportunity in front of you and you get to pick from amongst your different options however you want to do it. This was something that we had uh, uh, happen at our house. Uh, we have a family cemetery in our backyard and we decided to build a, a chapel to be kind of a devotional area to go with the, the cemetery. The chapel turned out to be a little bit bigger than we thought it was going to be. And uh, we had, Becky had given me permission to build one that would seat around 25 to 35 people. And I will tell you, when I marked it out on the ground, it seemed like it would seat that many. Turns out it seats about 275. So I was a little off, but... It gave me some really neat chances. It gave us a chance to figure out how to paint the ceiling because the chapel we built is a replica built to scale of a church that was built in 500 A.D. So a very, very, very old church. So uh, with the floor plan being what it was, so this is the decision we had to make. How do we paint the ceiling of this chapel that we've built? And I had an idea of kind of what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do in the, the nave, which is where you enter the main seating area before you go up to the center of it, I wanted Old Testament scenes that speak in some way about Jesus. Or in some way help tell the story of why Jesus was even necessary. And so I had to make... So it's not an easy decision to make. It, there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. There are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of stories. that the, the Passover that we're going to talk about. You could do over 30 images just from the Passover. And so how do we do this? How do we make these choices? It was a fun yet almost frustrating process. Because there were so many to choose from. Now, why do I say this? If I had to choose 30 Old Testament scenes for the ceiling, I can't imagine how John went about making deliberate choices when he wrote his gospel. This is what I'm targeting. This is a passage in John chapter 20. It's at the end of John, verses 30 and 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, John selected seven miracles. He only put seven in his gospel. Out of all of the miracles Jesus did, John said, I'm going to choose seven. And seven's a very deliberate choice. It's a very complete number in the Bible. It's a very complete number in that area of the world in that time. Uh, uh, Amos says, for three sins and for four, I bring this judgment. 
which makes seven. The menorah had seven candles. Uh, uh, the Greeks write over and over the significance of seven as a complete number. The Egyptians, same thing. The Babylonians, same thing. It was a complete number. So John wants a complete number of miracles. John's into that seven thing also. So John wants a complete number. He's got to choose seven. How does he choose those seven? What makes him pick those seven over some other set of miracles? When we're reading his gospel, we're not doing ourselves justice. And we're not doing him justice if we don't ask that question and make that examination. And the thing is, in 45-minute lesson, I can't explain it in one. It's going to take two, probably three lessons to make it through this. But that's okay because these are the core of his gospel. This is why he wrote his gospel. He says, these seven are written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now he doesn't put seven up there. Saying, well, did he really pick seven? Oh, yes. And if you're reading his gospel, he even lets you know. Because for the first couple of them, he starts counting them for you. On the wedding at Cana, he says, this was the first one. This is the first sign. Then his next miracle, this is the second sign. Because he wants you counting the signs. He doesn't keep doing it because he trusts you can count. But he gets you started, and you'll count the seven signs. So that's the question. Why did John pick those seven miracles? What was it about those? Sound interesting? Worth looking at? Then let's go on the journey. All right? These are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I will tell you, this is the key that not only unlocks the solution to why those seven miracles. But this is the key that unlocks understanding John's entire gospel. Scholars call this the purpose statement. This is where John gives you the purpose or the reason he wrote his gospel. So let's look at it. He says, this is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, in Greek, I've got a couple of folks in here. I throw in a little extra Greek because we got some guys in here who've taken Greek. And so if you haven't taken Greek and you're thinking, well, that's Greek to me, that's okay. You might pick up a couple of things. Greek students, Greek readers, it's a hina. It's a hina purpose clause here. In other words, there's a Greek word, hina, that means in order that, or so that, or to bring about. Okay? So that's what this is, the purpose of this. He wrote these for the purpose that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And another hina, that, in order that, so that, and so that, by believing you may have life in his name. There are two places there where he does that. There are two links to a chain. So John's chain of thought is, I'm writing these signs, and these signs are written so you may believe. So that by believing, you may have life. And that's his train of thought. And, I, and we follow that chain of thought very carefully through this, but as we follow that chain of thought, look what we pick up. 
These are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I want you just to sit there for a moment and be 21st century churchgoers. It's 21st century, you're in a church. The odds are you might look at that and think, okay, I got it, let's move on. But what I want to do is challenge you and say the odds are none of us have got it quite yet. And I really want us to drill down on this passage. I want us to drill down today with three points I want to make to you. I want you to get three things out of this lesson in terms of, uh, of information and data. Okay? Then we'll take that information and data and talk about how it changes our lives. But there are three data points in this passage. And you might know one of them and you might know two of them. But I'll bet you I can get somebody in here who's going to admit, I didn't know all three. So hang on, see which ones of them you know. We start with that, so that you might believe. I told you it's a hina purpose clause. It's got that hina in Greek. But so that you may believe is a really interesting problem in the Greek. It is one where we... If I might interrupt you, I believe there is an issue that you are not yet discussing with the class. I believe you should talk to them about whether the experts all agree on the letter S. Tell the class. Tell the class. The class. That's kind of scary. <laughs> well, I guess we should start talking about whether all the experts agree about the letter S. So let's start with the letter S. S. Look at that. Boom. S. In the Greek, sigma. And it's this letter that may or may not be in the Greek word that's translated, you may believe. That Greek word translated, you may believe, is pistousite, maybe. Pistousite. Excuse me, I still pronounce it like Lubbock. Pistousite. All right. It could be pistuseta with an S. Here, that's it in English. Pistuseta. Or maybe the S isn't there. Maybe it's just pistueta. See, we don't we're not one hundred percent sure. Because we've got old manuscripts that have the S in there. And we've got old manuscripts that don't have the S in there. Is it pistuseta or is it pistueta? Now, let me first tell you, don't hit the panic button. It really doesn't make that much difference. Okay, It really doesn't. I'll explain why in a minute. But let me also tell you that while scholars disagree... 
I think probably by my count, 90% of the scholars think the S is not there. It's pistuita. No S. The bottom line in my PowerPoint. That's about 90%. But there are some really strong scholars, including uh, D.A. Carson, Holly, who think that the S is there. And so out of deference to them, and especially Dr. Carson, who will be preaching for Dr. Fleming in the month of April here at church, and who may one day see some of these lessons, there are some really good scholars who think the S is there. <laughs> at least one. But I don't think it's there. Now, he's like, he's, that's, that's, that's like me playing basketball against Michael Jordan, okay? I mean, I have no business being on the court with him. He's much, much far beyond me scholastically. But I agree with the bulk of scholars that say the S was not there originally. Now, you, I hope, are sitting there saying, why on earth are we even talking about this? Because that Yehu got on there and told me I had to talk to you about the S. I wouldn't have put it in there. Let me tell you the difference it makes. It makes a difference in the Greek tense of the verb. The S there makes the Greek verb one tense, an aorist. The lack of an S makes it a present tense. So here's what it means in the translation. If John wrote an S in that word, you would translate it that you might start to believe. It takes someone who does not believe in Jesus, and he wrote this so that that person who does not yet believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, it moves them to faith. That's the reason he wrote it. You with me? Or, if the S is not there, which is what I happen to believe, it's that you might continue to believe. John didn't write it to move primarily, to move people to. He didn't pick those seven miracles out for people who don't believe to get them to start believing. Instead, John wrote, picked those miracles out so that people who already believe would be aided, would be encouraged, would be supported in their belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You see the difference? Okay. So there, we did the yes. These are written, it's either so that you may believe... That Jesus is the Christ. It's either so that you may begin to believe. Or it's so that you may continue to believe. And the reason I say it doesn't matter. Is because the gospel is still really effective. For both groups of people. This isn't saying the gospel is of no use to you. If you're in one group or the other. How many people have come to faith reading the story of Nicodemus. Unless a man be born from above. Born again, I think, is a common way of translating that, but uh, maybe it's better born from above. Same idea. Unless a man has a, a birth from above, he doesn't have eternal life. You know, so many people have been brought to faith that, of course, this gospel is used by God effectively for people who do not believe. But it's also used very effectively for people who do. So it doesn't make that much difference what the primary target was. It just gives us a different set of lenses to read the gospel through. 
And I want you to read the gospel with me through the lenses of no S for this morning. Just look at it with me. In other words, think of it this way. Think of John writing the gospel to a church of believers. And choosing those seven miracles out to encourage, aid, and support believers who already are in faith. But who are going to be encouraged in their faith. That's what he's doing. And that's what he can do for us. So with that, you're through with one of the three data points. That John wrote to strengthen, encourage, and aid believers. Don't read that and think, ah, this means to get people to come to faith. Recognize that according to the best manuscripts and 90% of the scholars, it means it's written to people who are already in the faith to aid and strengthen and encourage them. All right? Point one, we did the S, we're through. Point two, if you read this, a lot of those words there are John words. They're Johannine is the, the word that scholars will use. These are words that are really particular to John. Different people have different words that are particular to them. Um, I have found as I practice law in different parts of the country that I use words that they don't use up there and over there. For example... Dr. Bob and I were in New Jersey trying a case. They don't say y'all. It's the most stunning thing. We, did, we, we, we have done these things repeatedly in New Jersey and New York. They always, before they learn my name, they call me the y'all lawyer. That y'all lawyer said da-da-da-da-da. Okay? That then, then there's another word that, that's in our vocabulary that's not in theirs. That's the word fuss, F-U-S-S. It's a delightful word. And I'll be up there, and I, and I had this witness who was taking offense at what I said. I said to him, I said, sir, I'm not trying to fuss with you. And he said, what? I said, I'm not trying to fuss with you. I'm going to fuss with you in a little bit. This is a gimme. You, you don't have to just disagree with everything I say because I'm a lawyer on the other side. Some of the things I say, even you're going to say are right. He said, oh. I said, I'll tell you when I start fussing with you. But right now, they don't use the word fuss. They don't use the word y'all. They're missing a lot of vocabulary, and that's okay. <laughs> Not, that's because they get stuck in those, you know, safety schools, Harvard and that kind of stuff. They can't get into tech, so they got to go to their <laughs> safety school. Anyway, John's got a lot of words that are particular to him. And, 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 and you'll read them in the other Gospels, but you really read them in John. And let's look at them. The word believe. Believe it or not, the word believe, believing... And David talked about it today, except he was talking about faith. And he pointed out in that Romans passage... Romans 3, 21 through 26, he said there are 10 examples of faith. One of them is the verb belief. It's the same word in the Greek. 
It's just a question of whether it's in its noun form or its verb form. So we have two different English words, faith and believe. In the Greek, same word. That's why David counted the way he did. Okay? So believe or faith, we've got it twice in this verse. But it's a really big John word. It's a really big John word. Christ is a big John word. Christ is a big John word. Son of God is a John phrase. Life is a massive John word. And name is a very important word in the Gospel of John. So as we unpack this verse, we need to unpack each of those John words and understand them fully because they're very important to John. And if we're going to understand, why did he pick these seven miracles out to aid and encourage and strengthen me as a believer? The answer will lie in the way he uses those words. So we've got it, bless you. We've got to examine those words. All right? Let's start with two for today. Believe and Christ. We get through those two words. That's your second and third bullet for the day. And you're done. Let's start with believe. Now you may be sitting there thinking, wait a minute. I know this word. It can have an S in it or not. But this is the word pistuite. If it doesn't have the S. And that's what it is. But really, I've, I've told you before, Greek has what's called a stem on their words. And from that stem, they add different endings or beginnings or letters stuck in the middle that, that give you a different flavor for how that stem is used. I liken it to this. It's the word wears signs on it. So you have the core of the word, and you can put one sign on it that says me. You can put another sign on it that says you. You can put another sign on it that says y'all. You can put another sign on it that says uh, uh, it happened earlier or it's happening now. Or it happened earlier, but I really want to talk to you about the effect it's having now. Or it's not going to happen yet. All of those things are done just by adding little signs to the stem of the word. The stem of the word believe or faith is the P-I-S-T. Pistuo is the verb. Pistus is the noun. But it's P-I-S-T. P-I-S-T. Pi, Iota, Sigma, Tau. That's the stem. That's the core. When you see that, you know your words got something to do with faith or believing. In some way, shape, form, or fashion. That's your stem. Now, I got a scorecard up here. Do you know how many times Matthew uses P-I-S-T? Matthew. I'll tell you. 11 times. Mark, shorter gospel, but Mark, Peter's gospel, uses it 14 times. Luke, longest gospel. Luke uses it nine times. John, without looking, anybody want to guess? 96 times. 90. 
over three times all the other Gospels put together is a really important word for John. And it's a word that's worth a little bit of our time. Now, David talked about it this morning, so we're going to cut our time on it short and move on to the next word. But I still want to talk about it some. David talked about it, and he told you that, that faith is, you remember is F-A-I-T-H? Forsaking all, I trust him. Okay? Trust him. That's good. Because that Greek word pistuo means to rely on, or to trust, or to believe. But how do we know that? Do you, if you want to know what a Spanish word means, well, we could ask Luz. But I don't generally ask Luz. I ask Becky. Becky. I asked her the other day, what does this word mean in Spanish? She told me I was happy. I knew what it meant. Um, I did not, I think it was guapo. And she said that's the Spanish word for husband. Or handsome. I don't remember which one she said. It started with an H. Um, we have people who are bilingual. Trilingual. Quadrilingual. We have people who know different languages and can just say. But we don't have anybody whose principal first language is biblical Greek or ancient Greek. It's at least a second language for everybody. So how do scholars say, well, this is what that word means, when there's nobody around to say, well, I speak both languages and that's what it means. The way they do it is they go back and they read how it's been used. And they look at usages of the word. So, for example, if you wanted that P-I-S-T word, pistuo, you can go back and you can read Plato. Because Plato talks about it. If we go to the Elmo, this is a wonderful little um, book. These books, uh, that's not the Elmo, that's the Elmo. Yeah, these books, this is called the Loeb Classical Library. And what Loeb does, is put out actually by Harvard, is they'll put the Greek on one side of the page and they'll put the English on the other. So you can be reading along and you can read about, I mean, this is a book about laws and what laws should be and shouldn't be. How many of you hunt? We got hunters? I'm not talking Easter eggs. I mean like real hunting. Uh, all right. Um, Plato's talking about how the law should be about hunters. And he says, listen, there are people who go out there and they track the animal and they, they corner the animal and they'll shoot an arrow or they'll throw a spear or they might take a knife and they'll, they'll get that animal and they'll kill it. And that's legitimate hunting everybody should be allowed to do. He says, but then there are these lazy people. And all they do is set some little trap. And then they go to sleep. And they wake up the next morning. It's the difference if you're a fisherman between, say, fly fishing and just setting a trout line. And coming back the next day and pulling up all your hooks to see how many catfish you got. He says those types of hunters are lazy and it ought to be illegal. Ought to be outlawed. And here's how he says it. The night trapper. All right, we there? Yeah. The night trapper who trusts to nets and snares 
no one shall ever allow to hunt anywhere. They shouldn't even be allowed to hunt. If they're just going to set their little traps and their snares, that word and trusts to nets and snares, that's the word. Pistone right here. Um, okay, I, this is like a book. I better not write in. I've got a pencil. Hold on. Here it is. Pistone. P-I-S-T. Faith. So the hunter who has faith in or who believes in his snares and traps shouldn't be allowed to hunt. You see how that word that we translate because of Bible theology believe, you see how it means to rely on or to trust? You've got the same thing in Xenophon's and Abbasis. Xenophon's and Abbasis, he talks about uh, the military generals that were idiots that got slaughtered. And here's how he says it. He says... When, however, our generals and captains, following precisely the plan that you want us to follow, went unarmed to a conference with the bad guys, relying upon the truce. What happened in that case? They got slaughtered. So you don't go in there unarmed, relying on some truce. That word, relying upon the truce, it's faith, it's believe. Pistuasantes. It's the same thing. P-I-S-T. Pi, Iota, Sigma, Tau. Believe. It's the same thing. It's reliance. It's someone who trusts. Who relies. And so when we look at it theologically, that's what we've got. It's someone who trusts or relies. Look at it in, um, in the Old Testament. Here's an Old Testament passage translated into Greek. Where David has fled King Saul and he's living with the Philistines. He fleds, flees King Saul and he lives with King Ashish. And Ashish trusted David. Let him live in his midst. Thinking that David made himself an utter stench to his people Israel so he'll always be my servant. And Ashish trusted David. The word there trusted means believed. It's not just this idea of I think David exists. You know, the Greek who relies on his snares and traps isn't thinking, I believe those exist. It's, it's a trust. It's a reliance. And that flavor is there even in the New Testament as well. So, for example, John uses the word, I told you, 90 some odd times. Look at this wonderful passage. Jesus knows what is in a man. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed, Pistuo, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing, they came to believe, they came to rely upon him, they came to trust him. Now, does that mean that they came to a saving faith? That's not necessarily what John means here. It means that they were willing to follow him and they were willing to trust him and they would listen to his teaching and they'd rely on what he said because of the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew who they were. They trusted, they put their faith, they believed in Jesus because of what he was doing. And Jesus, that's the same word. It's translated in trust, but it's the same word, pastilla. It's the same word, believe. Jesus did not believe in them because he knew who they were. There's a, the way John writes it, it's got this delicious little irony in it. It's this... Okay, they believed in Jesus because they knew who he was, and he didn't believe in them because he knew who they were. 
It's, it's that same sense of trusting. And there are more examples I put in your paper, but I'm going to run out of time if I keep going. So in this sense, believe means, if we go back to the Elmo, I mean, uh, PowerPoint, please. In this sense, believe means to rely on. It means to trust. It means to, 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 to uh, uh, believe. All right? Now, that's your number two point, the meaning of believe. Here's your number three. Let's talk about Christ for a moment. Now, this ought to be a gimme, right? He's written it so people would believe that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, we, we, Jesus Christ, that's his name, isn't it? A lot of children would think so. Almost as if it's his, the, the, his, 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 the end, last part of his name. No, it's not. It's a title. Now, John wants us to be real clear on this, so John writes about it. We're going to go back to the Elmo for a moment. No, it take, yes, no, yes, just throwing y'all off. Y'all go where you want to go. All right, let's go Elmo. There we go. So look at John 141 for a moment. This is the first chapter of John. Whoops. Here it is. Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel. And Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found, uh, 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 nope, nope, go back up. We got Andrew, Simon Peter's brother up here, 141. He found his brother Simon, Peter, and said, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. You see that? Messiah there is just putting Greek letters to a Hebrew word. There's not a Greek word, Messiah. So John puts Greek letters to the Hebrew word Messiah and then translates that Hebrew word Messiah into Greek. The Hebrew word Messiah means anointed. So what John says, we found the anointed one and that means Christ. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. Now, if we can go back to the PowerPoint for just a moment and stay on the buttons, because we're only going to be here for a second. Christ, John tells you, Christ means Messiah. So here's the challenge for you. The meaning of Christ. Now, you're sitting there saying, well, I know it means Messiah. All right, here's, here's, here it is. Let's go back to the Elmo. Look up Messiah in the Old Testament. You don't find it. You look up Messiah in the Old Testament to see what the Old Testament says about the Messiah. You won't find it. You're saying, well, but Messiah means anointed, so you look up anointed. Yes, you do. But out of the several dozen anointeds that you'll find in the Old Testament where that word is used, Mashiach, you're not going to find a bunch that apply to Jesus, the Messiah. You'll find stuff like Leviticus 4.3. Leviticus 4.3 talks about an anointed priest, a Messiah priest. And it says, if the anointed Messiah priest sins, then he's got to bring a guilt offering not just for the people, but also for his own sin. Well, that reference to the Messiah priest, that can't be Jesus. If Jesus sins, he needs to offer a... That's not talking about... So where are all these Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah is? Kind of interesting. 
things that make you go, hmm. And there are clearly Old Testament prophecies about the one who's going to come. We have prophecies like this in Genesis 49. 49 verse 10. I think Dale Hearn taught this uh, 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 when we were in, in the Old Testament. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff but from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's clearly talking about Jesus, we think, the Messiah, the expected one. But it doesn't say Messiah. doesn't say it. Or how about this passage out of Isaiah 11? We all know this to be messianic, but it doesn't say Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees. With righteousness he'll judge the poor. He'll decide with equity for the meek. Look how it continues. It says, uh, the verse 6 that we all know. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, faithfulness of his lion. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion fatten calf together. And a little child shall lead them. Never says Messiah. Doesn't say it. Another clear prophecy that we would say is a messianic prophecy out of Numbers. Numbers 24, 17. I see him now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It will crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Seth. But it it doesn't say Messiah. So what's going on here? How much time have we got? we got a few more minutes. Okay, this is in your written lesson in great detail. I've brought the books, but I don't know that I've got time to give them to you on the screen. So let me give it to you this way. From the time the Old Testament closed, it was very clear that God was sending a Redeemer. And people figured that out. But from the time the Old Testament closed until the time of Jesus and even beyond... Jews started using the term for that Redeemer, Messiah. And so the Jews were poring over Old Testament prophecies to try and figure out in what way the Anointed One, the Messiah, would come. And we've gotten the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written some before and some right after the time of Christ. We've got uh, uh, people talking about the Messiah. They talk about how the Messiah is going to be a priest. They talk about how the Messiah will be from Aaron and from Israel. In fact, most scholars think that they were expecting two different messiahs to come. Some think they were expecting three different messiahs to come. But the Dead Sea Scrolls talk about it. Then the Hebrew Old Testament at this, uh, actually a little before and after this time, had been translated into a more common tongue, Aramaic. Those are the Targumim. That's plural. Targum is singular. And, and you grab the Targumum and you look at them. And they not only translated scripture into Aramaic, but they did it with paraphrasing. They'd add some words to help it make sense. They took each of those Old Testament passages I just read you. And before the time of John's writing, 
in each of those passages, the Targumum said, this is talking about the Messiah. This is talking about the Messiah. This is talking about the Messiah. Messiah was a term that a lot of Jews and Christians would have been familiar with because it was a prophetic term of the time. And so the question was, is there going to be one Messiah or two or three? Is the Messiah going to be a king that physically liberates Israel? There was a fellow named Simon Bar Kokhba. And he claimed that name Bar Kokhba. A rabbi gave it to him. Kokhba means star. And he claimed it because the rabbi said this Simon Bar Kokhba is the Messiah talked about in numbers. He's the one who's going to come kick out the Romans and establish Israel. And so he tried to do that in the 120s and 130s. And he got killed. It worked for two years. He got killed by the Romans. Israel was destroyed. And the priest changed his name back. He was no longer Bar Kokhba, but he was Bar Goziba, which means the son of lies instead of son of the stars. He was a lying Messiah. But there were people who thought there'd be three, four, five Messiahs. At least two or three. That was the more common. Two or three Messiahs. Two or three different anointed people from God that were coming with the express purpose of doing something for God and His kingdom and restoring the righteousness and fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about how God would redeem His people. And John is saying, I'm writing this to you to tell you that Jesus is the Messiah. And he puts the word the in there. He's the Christ. There's only one. He doesn't want those people to be thinking, okay, well, Jesus has come and he's died and he's saved us. But hey, you know, there may be someone else who's going to come and redeem Israel physically. There may be someone else who's going to come and, and be that high priest that, that, that's talked about in the prophetic literature. There may be someone else who's going to come and be... And, and even Paul and others were saying, many people will come to you and claim to be Messiahs in Christ. We think of Messiah as Jesus. Rightfully so. But we do it because we're 2,000 years later. And for 2,000 years, that's what the church has thought. We misunderstand John if we don't realize at his time, people weren't all that sure about it. And they didn't know how many Messiahs there might be. And they didn't just equate a Messiah with someone who's going to redeem the world from sin. They thought there might be a Messiah who's going to function as a priest. Or there might be a Messiah who's going to function as a king of Israel. A physical king. And bring a physical... And, and, and what John is saying is, I wrote all seven of these miracles for you and these signs so that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah. That you would continue to believe this is to confirm you. And you don't understand these miracles if you don't see that these are the miracles explaining Jesus is the Messiah. There is no other. And that's what he's saying. So John's chain of thought. These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God and that believing you may have life. We'll finish the rest of those terms next week. Here are your points for home. Number one. These are written so that you may believe. Rely. Trust. One of the readers of our lessons, uh, a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar, Weston Fields, sent me an email. And I wish I had reproduced it for you, but the lesson had already gone to print. And he says, you know, and I think Weston's probably in his late 50s or early 60s, mid-60s. He says, this is what I've come to find 
He says, I've decided that there are lots of different people in lots of different faiths who are looking for their way to have peace with God and spend eternity with him. I made the decision I'm going to rely on Jesus the Messiah. And I have no plan B. And I don't need one. And that's what I want to do. I want to rely on Jesus not only for an eternal sense though. I want to rely on Jesus today. I want to rely on Jesus and trust him for what he speaks into my life today. Because he is the Christ. And all of those passages of scripture that spoke of Jesus' coming. Whether they used the word Messiah or not. They still spoke of the one who would come. Who would be born in Bethlehem according to Micah. Who would like a sheep be led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53. Who would be punctured for our iniquities and bruised for our transgressions. All of those passages that speak of Christ, they don't use the word Messiah. But that's who they were speaking on. And God is faithful. And he fulfilled every one of those promises in Jesus. And John writes, so that we may be encouraged in our faith that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Finally, he's the son of God. Now hopefully you're saying, you didn't cover that. No, I didn't. It's a point for home because it's homework. I want you to go back and read the Gospel of John this week. And each of those words that I said are important words to him, circle them. Circle the phrase, Son of God. In other words, I want you to read the Gospel of John, but I want you to read it slowly. Because we want to digest it carefully. Bite by bite. Would you pray with me? Our Father, it's so much joy to open up your word, to be transported back through history to see the way you've lived, the way you've worked, what you've written and secured for our use to encourage and strengthen us. And it's so much joy, Father, to get to do it together in a group setting. Help motivate us this week, Lord, to spend time, each one of us, in the Gospel of John. Motivate each of us, Lord, to see the treasures you've put in there for us and for all people of all time. We love you and are honored to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen.